Well, it's uh, somehow that time of year again, where we suddenly, kids and parents and teachers' uh, lives are, are shuffling a bit, and we get ready for what begins as kind of a new year that, that starts over again in the fall. And there's some things that go along with that. And so this last week, we've, we've been prepping a lot because my wife's a teacher, and she's got her classroom that she's setting up, and then they're having an open house. And so we were just talking through the logistics of like, okay, what are the events happening over the next week or two? Uh, where are the open houses? Where should I be? Uh, what's going to happen? And so we, we found out, okay, well, uh, Beth had a, a open house on Thursday night, I think last, this last week, and we're like, okay, I'll, I'll pick the kids up from school, and then we're like, wait, with our car situation, I drive a small car, and then she's got the Traverse, and we're like, okay, I guess I should take the kids to school, and, and I'll pick them up, and it'll be fine, and maybe if you're on social media and you, we're friends, you might have seen we had a daddy-daughter night, and it was fun, um, but that morning we wake up and it's time to kind of go through this process. And I'm like, I haven't taken the kids to school in a, in a couple months probably. And, and we're trying to make sure we get out the door okay. And I hear my wife leave and go into another room and say, what happened to your head? Which is not how you want your days to start. <laughs> Dallas, come in here. Also not great. <laughs> like what on earth am I walking into? And so um, our, our smaller uh, daughter, our two-year-old, she's recently graduated from a crib to a, a bed, and it stays on the floor because we were afraid of like, her rolling off the bed. And so we're just kind of transitioning her. Well, she has a massive gash down her forehead, probably about two inches, inch and a half. And that's not as concerning because you can have long paper cuts, but it gets a little wide at the top of that. And she has an Ikea bookshelf that's near her, her bed, which it seems like maybe she lifted her head up and then bam, right on the corner of this bookshelf. Um, and it's not just the cut, you know, it, it's sticking out. And she seems like she had no idea. So uh, like a few minutes later, it seems like she walked by a mirror because suddenly she started panicking. She saw herself in the mirror and was like, what happened to me? The fun of that is now dad gets to be the one to take you to school for the first time in a few months, and what's wrong with her head? Which is a little bit concerning, because like in today's age, like every bump and bruise, every cut has to be recorded and kept track of, and you're like, is someone going to think that I've done this? And part of it is like you're reading, like the world puts all these stories on you of like what you're supposed to be like, what you shouldn't be like. And for a lot of guys, the story is, uh, you don't have any emotions except anger when it explodes out of you. And it's a little bit like you're supposed to be the Incredible Hulk, always in control of your emotions, have no emotions, because when it comes out, it's rage. Uh, and so it's usually a bad thing, like we don't want any of that. But there's also these times in life where we want the Hulk to come out. And one of the big Marvel movies that came out recently, you want the Hulk to fight this big bad guy, and suddenly he doesn't ever show up. And you're like, I want the Hulk rage. I need this violent power. And we live in the midst of that tension of what do we do with our anger, our emotions, our, the violence that seems to come out of us? And in church settings, we wonder, what is, what is up with violence? What's the relationship between violence and God? And the question that was asked is, why is it that in so much of history, religion tends to be so violent? Why does violence so often come up around religion? And so I think a lot of that answer, we have to talk about uh, how we see God 
in the midst of violence. I mean, we've got stories of plagues, we've got stories of conquests, we've got stories of floods. Uh, So there's a lot of violent imagery in the Bible. What do we do with all of that, and how does that play out in our faith? Uh, I want to point out that this is not like a recent question. This, you know, said throughout history. And probably the highlight, like mile marker, of when the church has looked violent to the outside world is the Crusades. Around 1,000, like 1,095, Pope Urban II called on the very first crusade. Uh, And it goes the way that you would expect. A lot of dehumanization of the enemy, of all the awful atrocities that they've done as a way to inspire the response. But what's unique about it is like, people have always had fights, people have always called people to respond, but the way that he used the church and our faith into the midst of that is particularly challenging to us. I just want to read you an ending quote from the historian that recalled this speech. Uh, you will hear in it a quote that we said earlier today that we didn't talk about this, but uh, Brentley will Brentley read scripture today, and we're going to hear the scripture again from a very different vantage point. Uh, Pope Urban II says, Whoever therefore shall determine upon this holy pilgrimage, right, war as pilgrimage, and shall make this vow to God to that effect, and shall offer himself to God as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, shall wear the sign of the cross of the Lord on his forehead and on his chest, and when truly having fulfilled that vow, he wishes to return, let him place the cross on his back between his shoulders." so that indeed the twofold action will be fulfilled of the word of the Lord as he commands in the gospel. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. And so we have this like invitation to war, which is couched in, hey, offer your body as a living sacrifice. God's inviting you to give yourself over as a sacrifice. And what is it to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Like this is your duty, this is your, your requirement. And so the religious language is used as a call to war. And it's not unique to that era. Like, we, we do this all the time, maybe not in as obvious of ways, uh, but almost any war, if you were to guess, there's going to be some religious language added to it. Uh, for those who either lived the 80s or have studied the 80s, uh, what kind of empire was the Soviet Union described as? The evil empire. Uh, that was a common refrain in the 80s. Uh, and it's, it's easy when we frame things as good and evil. Like It just speaks into our moral personhood that, of, that I'm fighting a cosmic battle of good and evil, and that's how I can go into violence, because I, I need to see the world as, as good and evil. Uh, what I found powerful was that, that that phrasing that became so popular, um, the evil empire, was actually first used uh, at a a religious event, at the National Association of Evangelicals, uh, when President Reagan at the time spoke there in, I think, 83. Um, But it was a a phrase used to speak to church people, that that we're fighting a battle of good and evil. And so, like, we use a lot of good and evil language. We use religious language to get people to go to war, to go to fight, to go to conflict. And so, like, well, what do we do with a Bible that has plenty of violent images. Like the, the quotes from the Pope Urban II wasn't really the parts that usually get connected to it, but you could go to Joshua and the conquest about invading into the new land. Uh, there's plenty of violent things we can pull from. So what do we do with all of those things? So uh, I'm going to read for us a text that's going to be very obscure, very 
strange. It's okay to call it that. We're gonna read from book of, the book of Revelation, and so you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I get it. It's probably going to be a little strange. The imagery is a little bit different. Uh, and it sets up this apocalyptic imagination of the end of an age, the beginning of a new age. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna read this story from two vantage points. And so I'm just gonna read through this text for us. And I'm gonna read a little earlier than probably your worship guide starts. Um, but we're gonna read from Revelation 19 and the story of the rider on the white horse. So I just want you to hear all of the kind of the imagery, and then we'll talk about what do we do with this kind of a text. Uh, the writer says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name inscribed, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly in the mid heaven, come gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all, both free and slave, both small and great. And then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed in its presence the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were killed by the sword of the rider on the horse, the sword that came from his mouth, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. I told you it's a little peculiar image, right? This image can be read in very different ways. Let's start with the way that probably seems more apparent. Uh, in this time, uh, if you were a persecuted minority religious group, especially like Israel, who feels like they kept being conquered by other nations, like early on in Israel's history, they're like, hey, we need to just follow God, we need to obey the commandments. If we did that, things will be better. And after they keep losing to more and more nations, they're like, wait a minute, like we need divine intervention. Like, I can try to be faithful, but I need God to actually step into reality and stop this, because I'm never gonna be powerful enough to stop the Babylons, the Romes. And so this apocalyptic imagination starts emerging where they're like, we're waiting for the day of the Lord where God's armies come and take over. Whether it's Babylon or Rome or whoever, God's going to come and there's gonna be a day of reckoning. And so that's the imagination and the hope and in Qumran, we've got scrolls where they're talking about you know, how you prepare for this kind of battle. And so in this image, you, you see this rider on the, on the white horse, uh, which has all these terms around word of God and things like that where we think Jesus. And so we're confronted with, this image doesn't really look like the Jesus of the Gospels. right? Like he, he just feels a little different. And so what do we do with this image of Jesus here as the rider on the horse? I love the graphic imagery of he's got like tattooed on his leg there, 
uh, inscribed on his leg, uh, King of King and Lord of Lords. He's got a blood-stained robe. Um, it's, it's a very peculiar imagery. What happens is, is for a lot of people, this is a basis for saying, see, this is how God really is. Like the Gospels is God being really patient, be like, hey, I'm offering you love. But like at some point, God's patience runs out and like the timing is over. And God's wrath and violence will come for those who didn't say yes. Uh, And so there's this thought of like, we knew truly Jesus would be the conquering warrior God. Uh, And that all of this suffering servant and sacrifice, that can't be what's really here. And so we have all this kind of imagination around, surely that's who Jesus actually is. That's who God actually is, the one who will come in and conquer and war. And so there's some fun ways that this works itself out into the world where we talk about this kind of imagery. I'm going to uh, read from uh, maybe less thought of as theologian, but theologian Willie Nelson. Uh, He has a song, Come On Back Jesus, which I think encapsulates this idea that like looking for the bloodbath of Jesus's return. He says, come on back Jesus, come on back Jesus and pick up John Wayne on the way. The world's done gone crazy and it seems to get worse every day. So come on back, Jesus, and pick up John Wayne on the way. Time to take off the gloves. They just don't respect peace anymore. Love that kind of image of like, someone doesn't respect peace, so it's time to take the gloves off. (laughs) Like that's going to solve it. But if we have old John Wayne, we know he can swing from the floor. While he kicks there, you can fill in the blank. We'll just stand there and watch him and pray. So come on back, Jesus, and pick up John Wayne on the way. There's this notion for a lot of people of like, I want Jesus to come back and give those people what they deserve. And like, if you don't say yes to God, my loving little tract or whatever kind of easy packaging, if you say no, you're going to get the violent return of Jesus. And that's, for many people, how they see this. And I've sat in rooms with, with pastors where like, but this is really what we're looking for, right? Like, this is who God is. Like, he can't stand to be around sin. So, like, you're going to have the violence, right? Like, God's going to take over. And so, like, hey, come back, Jesus. But, like, I like kind of Willie Nelson's thing on this of, like, I'm not actually going to picture Jesus beating this guy up. But, like, hey, bring John Wayne with you and and let let the actor who plays a fighter uh, beat him up. Uh, Less subtle... Uh, if you, again, follow me on social media, uh, a few months back I posted a video of a pastor who gave a message, and there's a lot to say about that little clip, but uh, he, he talked about Jesus not coming back like Mr. Rogers. And he wanted to say, like, he's not coming back with a button-up vest, he's not coming back like that. And his thing was, he says, Jesus is coming back like Rambo. And then he did a whole, like, machine gun simulation thing. Um, that that's how Jesus is coming back to, to wipe out his enemies. And I think we need to come to grips with, like, at least for a large group of people, and maybe even for someone who's worshiping us, like, there's this notion that violence is the long-term kind of vision of God, that at some point, uh, we got to wipe everybody out who's on the other side. What's interesting is, I don't think this text is actually meant to do any of that. Uh, It definitely looks really bloody. It looks like a bloodbath, right? I mean, why are there birds coming to eat all the flesh? And it's, it's strange. But it says there that, that the writer 
slays his enemies with the sword, the sword which was from his mouth. And it's like, we're reading a bunch of metaphors. We're reading a bunch of allegory. We're reading things that are not meant to be taken, taken literal. So like, why on earth talk about the writer whose sword is his mouth? And so we've got the, the tropes, we've got the genre of this apocalyptic fight, but the writer seems to be transforming that. And so, yeah, we have the writers ready for battle, but what is it that Jesus wins the battle not with an actual sword, but with truth, with speech? That speech is what eventually conquers and wins, and, and that you don't need a, a stronger army, you need truth and goodness and love. And so it takes this image that is expecting this violent uh, third act of a movie fight scene and says, Jesus' mouth is all that we need. And that his truth, uh, his word, God's teaching, is actually what might bring transformation. Which uh, completely turns on its head all of this apocalyptic imagination. Uh, because for so long, uh, even in the Acts, the apostles are like, hey Jesus, hey, when are we going to overthrow Rome? You know, like, when is this happening? Like, you know, resurrection happened, all right, you're back. Like, at some point, we're taking this back, right? And like when they come to arrest Jesus and, and Peter's like, I'm getting my sword out. Stop. And Jesus has to keep telling them, hey, it's not, we're not doing it this way. This is the only imagination the world has for how do I transform the world is with enough power. And Jesus is like, hey, that, that, that's not the way. That's not God's way. And so Jesus, with, with truth, with love, with speaking reality, is what changes minds, what changes hearts, what changes the world. Um, but we kind of struggle to believe that that's enough. You know, we struggle to believe, can that actually work, God? Can that actually be enough to change? You know, we have these never-ending conflicts, never-ending fights. And we keep thinking, if I build a better weapon, maybe that will win. But Jesus comes, hey, let me speak truth. And at some point, truth wins and love wins instead of violence. And so I think about, we, we just have such a, a limited imagination of what can, what can God use to transform us and transform the world. The, the other way that this comes out, if you want like the litmus test of how someone sees God and, and God's relationship to violence, you can look at that apocalyptic end of time thing, what does God do? Uh, but you can also look at the cross. You have two very different readings from the exact same passages, the exact same stories. Whose violence is being enacted on Jesus? Is it God who needs to be violent on Jesus? Or is it the people in the story who need to be violent on Jesus? And so humans tend to try to solve our problems with fighting, with pain. And so the humans in the story are like, I don't know what to do with Jesus, so let's get rid of him. And so they tie you down, they try to take your life, they try to humiliate you, try to embarrass you, shame you, so people leave you behind, and leave you as a symbol hanging on a cross dead that, that people will realize, never do this again, don't try me. And God in that story is the God who endures violence, endures pain, endures harm, and transforms it and says, this isn't the end. Resurrection is the beautiful power of that story, 
it's not simply that Jesus dies that makes him marvelous. It's that Jesus dies and raises again. That is what is beautiful and gives life and hope. And so while we keep trying to win by violence, God says, hey, that didn't work. Nice try. Not even your most violent attempt to stop me is going to win. Life carries on. Resurrection happens. And so what what happens is, is if we start reading our texts to say God uh, uses violence for good, it's easy then for us to say, I can use violence for good. But if God is always in the midst of bringing life, even where there's death, even when there's pain, uh, it might not lead us down some of the same paths of violence in our everyday world. And so we, we encounter not necessarily an easy answer to solve, as this whole series has been. But like, it's not like violence in God is so easy that, like, of course, you shouldn't even be asking it. Because um, there are texts of violence. There are floods. There are plagues. There are conquests. But we, as Christians, are called to, like, what do I do to make sense of that in light of Jesus? In light of who Jesus is, how do I read these texts? That's what sent the early church into all sorts of, uh, of very powerful and imaginative ways of reading Scripture, of like, what do I do with who Jesus is in these stories? And so I want to lead us into uh, one last text and one last image of like, wh- how, can I, how can I be reshaped around this kind of call uh, of kind of avoiding or uh, not using violence to win, but something altogether different? Uh, if you were probably to pick a, a, an image that sticks with people who've grown up in the church, uh, you might remember Paul in like the armor of God. I'm going to read to you from Ephesians 6 about the whole armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic power of present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and have, having done everything to stand firm. Stand therefore and fasten the belts of truth around your waist. Put on the breastplate of righteousness and as, as shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And there we see again that same return about the sword of God's word, of God's truth. And many of us, we might read this and say, okay, I'm ready to go to battle. I'm ready to go to fight. Uh, But we've got to be reminded of what's happening with this story Paul is transforming all of this imagery around the soldiers of his day into be truthful, be just, be faithful. Like if you want to go to war, go to war with your right living. And so what do you think about like, um, how do I take that imagery and say like, hey, it's not about going to battle with physicality. It's about living for God faithfully. And so I, I think about like, what would it be to say that, like, you know, to, to have the, the machine gun of kindness? You know, like, in, in a world that's 
very fearful around uh, of gun violence. You know, like, what is it to say, like, pick up the, the gun of kindness? Yeah. It's not to say, I, I, you know, just love weapons, but it's saying transform this idea into something that gives life and gives hope and, and good things. What does it say to have, um, you know, tanks of love and aircraft carriers of joy? You know, like, what is it to transform all of the, the images of power into faithful life and faithful living? And to go into your everyday life, equipping yourself for battle with those things, as opposed to, you know, the, the usual methods of power. And so, like, the, the truth is that we all have that power. Like, we are all equally equipped for that battle. We are all able to be called to be faithful, to put on... Uh, our, our love and our joy. You know, when Pope Urban II, uh, a part I didn't quote from on his call of the Crusades, he gave a limitation, like, we don't want your old. We don't want your, your, your people who aren't strong. Like, hey, just send the healthy ones, right? But to God's army, that's this army that is not about violence, but about life. Everybody is invited. Everyone can put on that equipment that brings about faith. And I love the, um, the shield. It quelches these, these fiery arrows. You know, if you had a wooden shield, like, that's pretty bad if you've got a fire arrow coming at you. <laughs> You're going to lose that shield really fast. But it's not just something that protects you, but it quelches the destruction and the violence that comes your way. So, like, what is it to be people that, 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 that quelch animosity and pain and anger and violence and, and bring about another way and another possible way forward. And so what I hope that we can see in the midst of this struggle around what is violence and faith is that there is a way of love that's not weak but is powerful and that God didn't transform the world through, through anger and, but through love. God to love the world. And so if you've never kind of been able to venture onto that path, uh, this text is not in a text to embrace, like, I, I just want a warrior God who, who's going to defeat all my enemies, but it's an invitation into a way of love, an invitation to make that way of love a part of your life, a part of the arrows of your uh, repertoire, that when you go about daily life and you have this, like, this feeling, this angst towards, towards anger or towards jealousy or whatever harm-inducing path that our emotions can take us down, of, of putting on God's tools that can bring about a better way than that way. And so there's an opportunity there. And for those of us who have been going on that journey for a while, it's an invitation to be mindful of that journey, to be mindful of how have I uh, loved my enemy? How have I went to transform with truth and not just throwing on extra pain? Uh, we all know the, like, the harmful judgmental looks the harmful judgmental tones of voice. Uh, but what is it to use love and faithfulness and hope uh, to bring a better tomorrow? And so in the midst of a, of a war-torn world, in the midst of a painful world, in the midst of fights and families and workplaces and, and everywhere, what is it to just sit and rest with God and a God uh, who loves you, who cares for you, and wants a better world? I think we, we take that notion for granted. Um, if so many pagan religious groups of that era, where you have gods of war, you've got 
the gods having fights all the time. But what is it to rest in God's love and God's embrace? Not just to rest there as if it's not moving anywhere, but rest in that ship that's moving towards a life for all and transformation of the whole world. And so that's our invitation today, to see God in the midst of that love, in the midst of that work, uh, and to hopefully not contribute to the patterns of pain and the patterns of harm uh, that so often seem like they're winning. So would you just join me in prayer as we invite God's love to overflow over us? Lord, I know for some of us, Maybe our our patience is worn thin. Maybe our cup is running low and we're feeling empty. And when we're empty, we start living things out on our own path, our own ways. We start belittling people who we love. We start losing our patience and our kindness. Lord, I ask that your, your spirit of love might flow in and through us and that we might be your people who show that there's another kind of way to be in this world. We might be a people who, who see your sacrifice, who see your endurance, and that that might renew us, that might give us strength, might give us courage to face a new day. Lord, for all who are in pain, for all who are grieving, for all who have been abused and harmed, for all who don't know whether they have safety for the day, Lord, we ask your protection. We ask for your, your peace. We ask that we can be a part of that protection and peace, that we can be people who step in to help there be chances for life in the midst of despair. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your love. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.